Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. At the NATO summit, President Biden announces increased U.S. military presence in Europe. Biden today unveiled plans for an increased U.S. military presence in Europe, the pretext being a response to Russia's intervention in Ukraine. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Sputnik News analyst. He is joining us from Madrid at the NATO summit. Wyatt Reed, as always, Wyatt, welcome back. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So the new deployments are to include a permanent headquarters for the U.S. 5th Army Corps in Poland, as well as the movement of two more F-35 fighter jet squadrons to the U.K. Understanding why it is far back as the 1990 State Department memo warning that creating an anti-Soviet coalition of NATO countries along uh, the USSR's borders would be perceived very negatively by the Soviets, all Biden and his ill advisors are doing, it seems to be just pouring fuel on the flame. Wyatt Reed. Absolutely. I think it's a very accurate read on the situation. We know that Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez claimed that the NATO summit here in Madrid is aiming to, quote, send a message of unity in line with democracy, security and international order, which he claims is based on rules that Putin and the Russian Federation have blown to smithereens. But I think we see with this new development exactly what that so-called unity was based upon. It was based upon the ever-increasing militarization of Europe. So we have things like that uh, permanent headquarters for the 5th Army Corps in Poland, the, the F-35 squadrons, the United Kingdom, two more additional Navy destroyers in Spain, which brings the total to six uh, additional air defenses in Germany and Italy. Um, you know, all of this really, I mean, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars of hardware here just getting pumped directly into Europe, supposedly in the name of peace. Uh, I think that kind of speaks for itself uh, in terms of, of the, the significance of this. Well, it's, it's just another sort of step on the way towards World War III, as far as I can tell. There is very little coming out of this NATO summit in terms of efforts to find a diplomatic solution to the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, all of the efforts instead seem to be oriented at generating greater bellicosity, greater aggression, uh, and greater mutual distrust between European powers and between Russia. You know, why I understand that um, at uh, the NATO summit prior, at least prior to the NATO summit, that there was significant um, uh, amount of protest and that there are a number of places in Europe that are starting to break out in protest. So when the NATO leadership says we're going to dramatically expand and let's just be clear of what they're really saying, we're going to dramatically increase the amount of money that we were sp that we are spending to stop Russia from invading 
invading us, even though Russia has no intent upon invading them, at some point it appears that the people of, of the EU are waking up and saying, perhaps you might want to consider that we want to be warm and have our stomachs and have jobs and have our stomachs filled. Um, what are you hearing or seeing in the in the EU um, regarding the economic pain? And how do you think that aligns with the massive increase of finances that they want to put into NATO? Here in Madrid on Monday, there was a massive protest against NATO, against the refusal of these European powers to invest in their own people. Um, there were at least 2,000 people that came out in the streets of Madrid uh, calling for an end to NATO, an end to the militarization of Europe. All throughout Europe, there is massive inflation. People have been cut off uh, by their own governments from access, from being able to access uh, cheap, affordable, reliable uh, natural gas from Russia, which means that Europe is going back to heating itself on coal and on sticks. You know, it's it sounds like a joke, uh, but that is the direction that the so-called green revolution has. Uh, essentially taken form here in Europe is is backwards. It's it's going it's a return to pre-industrial era almost. And in Spain itself, we have a 37 year high inflation in, in this month in June. Uh, the annual inflation rate reached 10.2 percent. It's the highest since April 1985. This all coming at the same time that Spain is switched over and now its number one natural gas supplier is the United States. So this expensive fracked gas that has to get shipped thousands and thousands of miles across the ocean, as opposed to just being pushed directly through a pipeline that already exists, obviously comes with its own uh, negative impacts in terms of price uh, for consumers and uh, in terms of the ecological impact as well. So all of these developments, while they may paint a rosy portrait for weapons manufacturers, uh, paint a less optimistic portrait for the working class here in Europe. And following up on Garland's question, talk about the political impact that this really starts to set for European governments, which could then wind up impacting uh, this uh, this so-called uh, uh, agreement by or the, the coalition of the willing, so to speak, because these are most of these are parliamentary systems. They are fragile in many instances because of the coalitions that have to be formed in order for a power to be wielded and legislation to get passed. And so, as there as as more unrest foments in these countries, the the leadership can start to feel uh, more pressure from the people. Absolutely. I think we're going to see a rehash of what we've seen over the past decade when the Syrian uh, migration crisis that was essentially spurred on by NATO, by the United States, by uh, a number of Western powers. Uh, basically backfired for a lot of these these political parties when they were ousted by uh, harder right-wing parties that had nationalist sentiments, that uh, had anti-refugee platforms. I think we're likely to see a repeat of that uh, all throughout Europe, but it's, it's going to be worse because there are uh, the, we're likely to see a, a greater uh, number of, of refugees. We're likely to see uh, see all of this accompanied, of course, by the massive influx of weapons, which are being uh, delivered daily to God, God knows who. 
Uh, I mean, you if you hear listen to, for example, the head of Interpol, uh, he says that this is uh, all that these weapons are already being distributed uh, all throughout the European Union, and and that this is only likely to get worse. So uh, we know that the ne- the ramifications of this kind of bellicosity from the from NATO countries uh, really are lo- are likely to be felt by them by they themselves by their domestic populations. And to me, it's it's pretty clear which direction that that is going to take those countries in politically at the ballot box. You'll likely see further nationalism and in in a somewhat perverse twist, you may see uh, parties which have have <clears throat> less uh, desire to go to war with Russia be pushed into power as well, although I think that would be of, of benefit to, to those populations, ultimately. Um, let me ask you this. One of the, the uh, big uh, issues going on, one of the big uh, things that happened is that we understand that um, Turkey has dropped their demands or has had their demands uh, addressed by NATO um, or concerns uh, as far as Finland and Sweden and that Finland and Sweden are set to enter NATO. What are you hearing about that? What are your thoughts on that? Right. So the Turkish presidency issued a statement saying that Turkey, quote, got what it wanted from the talks with Sweden and Finland. And so what they wanted and what they got was that Sweden and Finland will lift their arms embargo on Turkey. Both of them will support Turkish, uh, the Turkish stance on the PKK, the Kurdish Workers Party, and stop supporting the armed wing, the YPG. They said that uh, Sweden and Finland will amend their laws on terrorism to Turkey's liking. Uh, They will share intelligence. They will extradite terror suspects. And we know already, uh, just within 24 hours of this announcement, that there are 33 people who Turkey is requesting be extradited from Finland and Sweden. Uh, Those extraditions are now uh, more than likely going to go ahead. And we also know that Turkey, Finland, and Sweden plan to establish a permanent joint mechanism, quote, at all levels of government to deal with uh, issues of intelligence, security, uh, and legal matters. So this is a a major, major shift. Uh, It essentially seems that Sweden and Finland are allowing their laws to be written by a foreign country under the demands likely of the United States, uh, likely of NATO, although publicly... uh, I believe it was Anthony Blinken stated that uh, this is not a deal that the United States is involved in. It's really impossible for me to (laughs) imagine that they're not, that all three of these countries simply sat down and decided, you know what, let's hash this out. I I don't think so. Um, And I think also the fact that there is, you know, conspicuously absent from this discussion is the military hardware question with regards to the United States. That was a big sticking point uh, for Turkey when they put out their wish list for what they wanted to get um, in terms of concessions out of uh, their recognition of Sweden and Finland's or their 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 uh, uh, decision to allow Sweden and Finland to be subsumed into NATO. Uh, th- that basically that list I just read you was the main gist of their wish list. So they got pretty much everything they wanted in terms of Sweden and Finland. The things that were left out were things like uh, Turkish uh, participation in the F-35 program, which has been suspended since 2017, 
when Turkey acquired an S-400 uh, air defense system, air defense systems from Russia. And also the F-16 question, the United States owes Turkey a number of F-16s, but has not been willing to move uh, on that either. Also citing uh, and creating this this sanctions effectively against Turkey. That was that was in 2020. So um, wh- what this means for Turkish United States relations, uh, that's not quite clear yet. But to me, it's more than likely that I, th- I think in the coming days we will see uh, uh, more information coming out. I think I think it's quite likely that there was some backroom deal done between Turkey and the United States as well that will clear the way. Uh, for these arms shipments to Turkey as well. It'll be interesting to see if Gulan winds up being Mm -hmm. extradited. If I were him, I I wouldn't be too comfortable sitting in Pennsylvania. I'd try to find someplace else to to go. I will say that was also uh, in the language that the the Gulenist groups as well are now set to be included under the Sweden and Finland's uh, terrorist designation. So they... Uh, we're also targeted by this. No word yet from uh, their li- the Gulenists likely uh, likely friends in Langley, but uh, I, I can't imagine that that was a decision that was reached without uh, U.S. input either. Uh, quickly, we have just about a minute and a half left. Biden officials privately doubt that Ukraine can win back all of its territory. White House officials are losing confidence that Ukraine will ever be able to take back all of the land it has lost. To Russia over the past four months, U.S. officials are now telling CNN your thoughts on a this admission. Um, because I always have to pay attention to not only what it what is said, but when it's said and who it is that's broadcasting it. So now that you hear this on CNN, this says to me a couple of things. Well, one with the inclusion now of Sweden and Finland in the NATO seems to me now that the United States may be saying, oh, who cares about Ukraine? We, you know, that's like the ugly woman at the dance. I, I, we don't care anymore. We'll dance with the pretty women. We don't need the ugly women anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard to say exactly what is motivating this. I tend to see Ukraine as basically the new forever war that now that Afghanistan is gone, this is now the new money sink, the new international or transnational money laundering operation, as Julian Assange might put it, by which the tax revenue is washed out uh, and washed back into the coffers of the military industrial complex. So, you know, in in that sense, you know, who really knows? I I will say I found one particularly uh, one uh, sentence here, particularly interesting in this CNN article, which is uh, a congressional aide is cited who says, whether Ukraine can take back <laughs> mm-hmm. these territories is in large part, if not entirely, mm-hmm. a function of how much support we give them, which is basically what you and I and everyone else on Sputnik has been saying for months, that this is really a proxy war between the United States and Russia. The Ukrainians uh, are just the conduit, and the United States is more than likely willing to fight until the last Ukrainian. And, and we're going to run a little bit long here, but I'm glad you brought that sentence up because that, to me— also could be interpreted as doublespeak. If you're saying that the Ukraine isn't going to get their territory back, but that their success is largely a part of how much money and support we give them, sounds like you're not going to give them enough support. Well, I think that would be the best possible outcome for the civilian population there is to have 
less bombs exploding on them, less rockets being shot over their head, less bullets being pumped into them. Uh, you know, the less weapons that get sent to Ukraine, the better for the for at least those who aren't political elites. Yeah, I, I, I agree in terms of, of what what to make of this. You know, it certainly does seem like they're opening uh, the possibility, at least, uh, you know, in the short to intermediate future of of kind of throwing their hands up and saying, you know, well, we look, we tried, but we just we ran out of Ukrainians. Wyatt Reed, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. Be safe. We look forward to talking to you soon. My pleasure. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports China warns against Asian NATO. Any attempt to set up an Asia-Pacific version of NATO would only bring more turmoil, Beijing warns. Should the U.S. heed this warning? Well, for insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So NATO should stop looking for imaginary enemies in the Asia-Pacific and never consider setting up a version of the bloc in the region China's envoy to the U.N. has said. K.J., you know, if you tell me it's raining, I'm going to go get an umbrella. Should the U.S. heed this warning? I think they should, but will they is the real question. You know, the Chinese position has been made pretty clear. They've essentially said through their foreign foreign ministry that NATO has already disrupted Europe, as in effed it up, and it should not seek to eff up Asia and the world as well. And they also said the sewage of the Cold War cannot be allowed to flow into the Pacific Ocean. That's pretty strong language, if you ask me. <laughs> yes, and very visual. Also, KJ, the th- here's the other thing that I, I, I'm looking at, and you know, it's something we've discussed a lot: the economy of the U.S., the economy of the economies, collective economies of NATO are melting away. They've got months; they've already destroyed, but they've got months before they're in free fall and total collapse at best. So here they are barking at Russia as. Uh, let's face it, you know, I'm opposed to all wars, but NATO came to Russia's border, Russia reacted, and Russia is, you know, to be quite frank, they're winning that war, and it's fairly obviously they're going to win it. Meanwhile, the NATO is there, the, 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 the blowback from their sanctions are wiping themselves out. And as they are being wiped out, they're still screaming, we're going to get Russia, we're not through. Oh, and there's China over there. We're going to get a piece of them too. And I'm looking at them like, you you guys perhaps haven't looked around and realized that your countries are falling apart. It's I don't know what to say. Your thoughts, uh, KJ. Well, they have looked around. They know exactly what the score is. This is why they were there were eight, 18,000 uh, riot police deployed uh, to uh, to near, you know, to police, uh, a, a, you know, quote unquote, a free free speech zone 12 miles out. 
from, uh, you know, the Bavarian Alps, where they were holding their G7 meeting. They know that the populace is up in arms with pitchforks. It's the same thing in Madrid. Even right now, as we speak, thousands of people have taken to the streets because they do not want what NATO and the G7 are concocting, which is more cold war, more hot war, more extended war, protracted war, and more damage and more harm and more suffering for the people of Europe and the world. They're opposed to that. They know that's what's going on. But they're so tied into their Western Atlantic notion of hegemony. And you can see that in the, the way that they treated, you know, the Asian in, in, invitees to the G7. They weren't even invited to the high table. They didn't even get to have dinner with the G7 leaders. And you see it in the language that they're coming out in denouncing China and calling it malicious and the way also that they're treating Russia. There's a very, very deep white supremacist, racist vein of this. And they would rather see the end of the planet than the end of their hegemony, the end of their supremacy. And that's what's really scary. So the Global Times has this piece and they talk about the NATO summit uh, kicking off and they reference this article in Foreign Policy, which came out Monday in, with this uh, very strong, uh, very uh, jingoistic language regarding China, and that you also then have Jake Sullivan, national security advisor, saying that NATO's strategy paper would speak in ways that are unprecedented about the challenges that China proposes. But then they go on to say that unlike the U.S. and the U.K.'s at radical attitude, that countries such as France and Germany believe that a more measured and cautious terms should be used. So that's telling me that the U.S.'s European allies, with the U.K. excluded, their realities or their perceptions of reality are different than the United States and that they are struggling to find a way that they can exist in that reality without upsetting the United States. Yes, that's absolutely true. And, you know, this is why, uh, for example, you know, Macron was trying to have it both ways along with, you know, uh, a bottle of Beaujolais. But essentially, uh, the, the EU, you know, is, is fractured because it knows the effects of this U.S. Uh, NATO-led escalation. Uh, this is why they had the G7 summit just before the NATO summit, because they wanted to hurt the cats, get everybody on the same page. And as for Jake Sullivan, you know, talking about the strategic concept uh, uh, regarding China uh, from NATO, that has already been released. And essentially, you know, they have declared hostilities against China. They're uh, comparing China and Russia in the same language. They're using the same template to describe them. They're essentially saying they're both systemic threats to the security of the alliance. They both employ coercive and confrontational rhetoric and disinformation. They're both malign cyber and hybrid actors. Uh, and uh, they're military threats and hybrid threats. They seek to undermine the rules-based order. Uh, and so once you've said that, and I note that this statement came out even before the NATO summit is completed, that it was pre-written, pre-drafted, and released 
uh, are at the start and not the end of the summit. This means that this is essentially uh, the United States putting forth its own view and then using NATO uh, like a ventriloquist dummy, and the rest of the NATO countries are expected to rubber stamp the statement which has already been released. You know, KJ, I think one of the things for those of who were not aware of it before, one of the things that the Ukraine crisis has has revealed is that very clearly is that there is no NATO. There is no EU. There are a bunch of vassals and with with puppet leaders who are they're they're no different than Juan Guaido. They are traitors to their own people. They are traitors to the interests of their own people. And when the United States says to them, I want you to take your uh, the economy of your country and throw it off a cliff. They just um, salute and say, yes, sir or yes, ma'am. How soon do you want me to do it? And that's what. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons, hopefully, that the European people themselves have learned that they have no democracies, that they have no leaders, that they're subject to the whims of the emperor. Yes, exactly. At the end of the day, you know, the democracy is purely pretextual. Uh, You know, the global ruling elite do what they want and they take their orders from the imperium, the United States. And so this is revealed very clearly that the EU leaders, the G7 leaders, will work against their own interests, against the interests of their own people, to do the bidding of the United States in its Asia pivot to contain and to encircle China and to confront uh, Russia. I mean, there is no independent policy, and that is to the insufferable harm and damage both to the people of the EU but also to the United States. The Global Times reports that the Chinese vice president to attend Philippine presidential inaugurations, experts say ties likely to remain friendly under Marcos Jr. What does this mean to you, KJ No? Well, it means that the United States, which has tried to use the Philippines against China uh, as one of the key Southeast Asian allies, this uh, strategy is not working. The Chinese have said that They've always had priority ties with the Philippines. They expect continued friendship, mutual trust, and cooperation. And they're making a lot of, you know, uh, offers regarding the development of infrastructure. But the United States was using the Philippines uh, not simply as a strategic base, which it, you know, which it will continue to do, but also as a, a form of lawfare. This refers to the South China Sea Tribunal. There's a private tribunal, a paid-for, uh, you know, hired tribunal, which rendered an unfavorable judgment against China on behalf of the Philippines. Well, this was concocted by the United States at CSIS, and they were expecting to leverage the Philippines uh, against China to delegitimate it, especially regarding, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the South China Sea. And that looks to be on the back burner again. So once again, the best laid plans uh, are being thwarted simply because China is working with strategic depth and strategic depth in its diplomacy. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Patrick Cockburn has a piece in Counterpunch entitled, The Media Celebrated Julian Assange and is Now Too Afraid to Defend Him. It has become easier over the last month for governments to kill or imprison journalists whom they want to silence. But the most sinister aspect of this assault on freedom of speech is that it is facing such limited resistance from the very media that is under attack. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, sir, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Cockburn writes, uh, Biden began by treating Saudi Crown Prince Salman as a pariah, but is now reversing this policy in the run-up to his visit to Saudi Arabia next month. Turkish President Erdogan is newly allied with Saudi Arabia. And of course, and I'm adding this, the Zionist state of Israel has gotten away with assassinating Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. Your thoughts, Jim Kavanaugh. And uh, don't forget, Ukraine has uh, shut down its op- all the opposition media. Correct. And you know, they uh, circulate lists of journalists who are to be taken care of. Uh, so, you know, this is the United States demonstrating its hypocrisy about freedom of the press and free speech and freedom of the press, which is extremely important. And as... Coburn says here, you know, uh, there's another line which is just like the one you quoted, but what's most ominous about the Assange case is the willingness of the media to largely ignore it. Look, we know and we see when the media wants you to pay attention to something, they make a campaign out of it. They don't give you one op-ed or one editorial every six months in favor of Julian Assange or whatever. They give you multiple stories per day with special sections and highlight every day and week by week by week the progress of whatever the issue is they want you to look at, January 6th or Trump or, you know, the Ukraine war. They want you to know about it, and they want you to pay attention to it. They've ignored this. They know it's a problem for them. They are deliberately uh, uh, assisting in their own in the suicide of the institution that they claim and the, and the rights that they want to make use of, which is the right of freedom of the press. This is the most dangerous element uh, attack on that that's been going on in the world for a decade. And they've did their best to trash Assange when they could as, as personally, as if that had anything to do with it. And on, you know, on goal, on, on the whole, what they're doing most of most of all is ignoring it and letting it go forward. It is a disgrace that Julian Assange is, put, is going through what he is going through, and it's going to go on for more years. You know, Jim, let me put two things together. In the same way that for years the kind of liberal press ignored um, how the um, the Democratic Party was botching up the Roe v. Wade thing, how when they had the opportunity to codify Roe v. Wade, they didn't do it. They passed this over for a year and they just used it to run on and to make hay off of the issue of Roe v. Wade and the threat to Roe v. Wade. And now that Roe v. Wade's gone, they're all going nuts. Here's my point. Julian Assange is a journalist and they're all keeping their powder dry about this journalist being, you know, being taken down simply for doing his job, uh, you know, as 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 an uh, um, uh, investigative reporter. 2024, Trump, DeSantis, whoever comes in with a 
conservative Supreme Court, one might even say reactionary Supreme Court, and a full reactionary Congress, don't they realize those people don't like the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN. They're going to use the same things they used against Julian Assange against these people and lock them up. And they'll be and I'll be looking at them saying in the same way that you didn't say anything about Roe versus Wade until it blew up in your faces, you're going to get the same thing when it comes to Assange and that president. Your thoughts, Jim? Well, you know what? They play the same game. Then they'll become the heroes of the free press. <laughs> then they'll promise you they'll change it. You know, that will be their fundraising mechanism at that point. And this is what, you know, people have to realize. You know, they will, and they may or may not uh, change certain elements on the, on the, out, on the uh, edges of this, but it's the seesaw politics. You know, they're anti-war when the Republicans are the warriors. Then when they get into it, they're the warriors. And now certain Republicans say, oh, we shouldn't be at war. They're in favor of uh, women's rights, and they are in favor of women's rights, but they're not going to do anything about it uh, that's, gonna, that's going to risk upsetting the apple cart too much. Uh, and, and if they get defeated, that's all right, because that means it's going to be an opportunity for them to make political hay against the Republicans and do the, continue the seesaw game. And that's what people have to realize. It's very difficult to know what to do about this because of the way the electoral system is structured in this country. But this is set up to be a game that, you know, the, the real priorities are, are, are of, the, of either party are to keep the system in play, to make sure the wealthy stay wealthy. Uh, as I saw today, you know, Obama promised, first thing I'm going to do is sign the, uh, the Freedom of Choice bill. Then he gets in office. Oh, I'm, that's not my priority. But he did save the banks. He did stand in front of the banks, bankers and say, I'm the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks. And that task he took seriously and made sure he did it because the, the, the investment bankers he was talking to and the investment bankers from Goldman and Citibank, which formed his, his administration, were doing it for their clients, on behalf of their clients. And that's on behalf of whom the government is run by the Republicans and the Democrats, the clients of Goldman Sachs and the clients of Citibank. And the other things they'll, they'll use to fight each other and to do this seesaw politics and, and fundraise. And you just made an incredibly important point that I want to be sure does not get glossed over when you talked about, I think you were talking specifically about the Clintons, and you said this is what they use, or maybe you were just talking about the media, you said this is what they use to generate to generate funds. So people need to really understand, and, and Roe v. Wade is a perfect example of this, that the reason why the Clinton administration didn't act on this and the reason why the Obama administration didn't act on this and the reason why the Biden administration didn't act on this is because they saw this issue as a viable issue for them to raise interest and raise funds. If they settled the issue as the electorate wants them to, they wouldn't be able to use it as they're using it now. Joe Biden is saying, oh, oh, Roe is on the is on the ballot now. Dude, that's settled now. It's, <laughs> you lost that fight. So <laughs> ding, ding, they counted you out. <laughs> they moved on to the next fight. So, it, 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 Jim, am, am I right? Yeah, well, it's, you know, I, I tweeted, I 
saw this meme today, which is very good. It was the Obama, we, uh, yes, we can poster with Obama. Yes, we can. And then he said, but we won't. And you'll still vote for us. <laughs> yes, we can, but we won't. And you're still going to vote for us. Because they keep, they have to keep issues alive. Both the Republicans in the day on this issue of abortion, you know, which is on its own. This is the problem. We, we, we haven't lost the ability to deal with issues in their own right. You know, this is a specific issue. And there's a lot of elements to it that are difficult to think through and, 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 and uh, talk about. And one has to address these things honestly. And I think neither the Republicans or the Democrats have done it uh, or, the, or, yeah, or the Democrats have done a good job of it. But what the Democrats have done a good job and what both parties have done have been have done a good job of creating a kind of political a, a political divide on this with various kinds of partial and in, in uh, to a certain extent dishonest arguments uh, and and not really making all of the arguments that that would have to be looked at look at the Supreme Court the issue of the Supreme Court why do they depend on the Supreme Court you know I mean you could pass a law about this and that's what they could have done so there's all kinds of issues involved in this and it's the whole dishonesty of the American political enterprise and the ideological enterprise where it's much easier to set things up to to, to be part of this red and blue tribalism which is which they want to continue, and they want to keep issues live in that, that people will fight over. In the meantime, Goldman Sachs and Citibank control the government for their clients. <laughs> and nobody argues about that. So, uh, you know, this is a very, that's the situation. And we don't, we have to address the issue of, of whatever it is. This is a pretty issue, abortion. People have reasonable arguments about it, have to address them, you know. Mandated vaccinations, got to address it. But no, these become immediately these ridiculous left, uh, not left versus right, really, but red versus blue arguments that keep alive the, the, the electoral carousel, the electoral seesaw. Jim, Ghislaine Maxwell has received 20 years in prison. But here's the thing, I got to connect the two. Julian Assange, now she was trafficking young girls. The truth is that this was an intelligence operation. We know it was an intel. The evidence is overwhelming. It was intelligence operation. I imagine they're giving sleeping pills to her guards right now. So God only knows if she's really ever going to see the 20 years. But whatever the case, she got 20 years. But Julian Assange is facing 175 years for exposing war crimes of the United States. She's facing 20 years, which many of us are suspicious if she will ever spend a day in, in prison. But she's facing 20 years versus 175 for for um for for Julian Assange. Your thoughts, Jim? Yeah, a the substance of the charges against them is one is being charged with telling the truth, the other is being charged with trafficking trafficking girls. Uh, and she has got a 20 year sentence, which will have parole in probably 15 or maybe even less if she gets that sentence. Yeah, I don't know what's happening. With I gotta think, as you say. It, it looks like and smells like a duck. It's an intelligence operation. <laughs> I mean, you know, they were filming people. We know this. We know this. And and this wasn't being. Where did where did Epstein get all his money? Why hasn't who you ever hear? We ever hear from Wexner? You know what happened to Wexner? Well, why should, why don't we know what happened? Where that money came from? Who was Wexner working for? Ghislaine Maxwell's father was one of the most. Oh, treasured Israeli spies in history. They gave him a state funeral and said out loud, this guy did great work for us as a spy. So 
what she was doing and who was running that show and what it was for, that we don't find out. Oh, where's the black book? Where are the names? Uh, where, you know, all kinds of things that were being hidden. And again, oh, you don't, you don't, but how many stories a day about the January 6th? You don't, how many stories a day about the big Elaine Maxwell issue? Where is she? What's going to happen to her? How many stories about Julian Assange? They don't want you to see what they don't what, what they don't want you to see. And I don't. It's very interesting to me because I got to think if she's still alive, I got to think. You know, I think she has powerful friends, and a lot of people think that. Uh, I'm tending to, I tend to. I, I, it's not. It's not unreasonable to think that she was actually running the show. And uh, I'd like to know that there's some kind of deal being made somewhere. I got to think that she has information. She has information. The court has information. And there's some deal being made that I, I think she's got to be kind of comfortable that she's not going to serve those 20 years or information would be out. So that's that's the curious part of it for me. But it is, you know, you see what the media wants you to know about and want you to think about all the time and what they want you to forget. Her little black book has been sealed by court order. So it's not as though it's at the bottom of the ocean. It's not as though we don't know where it is. It's not as though we can't get our hands on it. We we can't get our hands on it because the court, for some reason, has sealed it. And I can only imagine they're sealing it out of what they consider to be national interest. And not only national interest of this country, but of Britain and a few other places as well. Yeah, national interest of every country in the world, probably. I mean, they weren't, they weren't very Catholic in their, uh, you know, uh, outreach to uh, politicians and famous people around the world. So that's the black book issue. Who are the names? That's the, most in, that's the most obvious thing. But there's also what was the mechanism behind this? What was the real funding? Right. What right. was the real organization? And that's a whole can of worms that would require good investigative reporting. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that insight. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Progressives marched in Bavaria, Germany, denouncing the 48th G7 summit. The three-day summit of the G7 countries was held from the 26th of June to the 28th in Krun in the Bavarian Alps, with around 20,000 security personnel present in the region. What do these protests signal and the fact that a lot of this was not covered by American media? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He's traveled extensively in the Middle East and Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris and the Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here as always. So various groups ranging from anti-imperialist to climate Justice activists protested in various parts of the German state of Bavaria against the 48th G7 summit. It was held at Schloss Elmau, and which has served a number of functions, one of which 
as a Nazi military vacation camp. With the backdrop of the U.S. training and funding Nazis in Ukraine, this sounds a bit tone deaf to me. Caleb Moppin. Sure. Well, Bavaria is a region of Germany that has quite an interesting history. Um, as you mentioned, yes, there was that uh, that Nazi, uh, you know, training and relaxation place that was set up that Hitler was famous for going to. And certainly it was a bit tone deaf for them to have it there. But it's also worth noting that at one point, uh, for a very brief time, I don't even think an entire full year, you had the Bavarian Soviet Republic uh, that was declared in 1919 following the defeat of the Kaiser and the collapse of the German Empire. Uh, you know, before the Weimar Republic was established, briefly the people of Bavaria established a Soviet government aligned with the Soviet Union there. Uh, so that's kind of interesting aside as well. And it seems like the, the main point these protesters are making uh, is that the results of this confrontation with Russia uh, have not been in the interest of the people of German, Germany and other peoples throughout Europe. Uh, they've seen the price of gasoline go through the roof. They've seen the price of food go up. They're suffering, and that it's not in the interest of German workers uh, to be aiding uh, this fight against Russia and increasing the tension against Russia. Uh, and they don't see the interest of the German working class on the same side as uh, these leaders that were meeting for their summit. So it was quite a protest, far-left groups, climate change groups, different folks uh, assembled. And it was, uh, it's important to note that unrest in Europe is certainly rising. You know, Caleb, I think it's interesting that at a time when, you know, we're hearing from people like Bojo and Biden, they're, you know, stiffening their spines, saying we will stand up. Bojo recently said, Boris Johnson recently said that the inflation is worth it to stand up for Ukraine. But what we're seeing is um, people in the, who are actually suffering stand up. It's interesting, too, when you look at this, um, particularly in, in uh, when you look at this, that there are a number of groups that are socialist groups, that are leftist groups, that are kind of leading the charge, but that there's a lot of other groups that are joining in now. And as you always say, hard times or fighting times, I think this is, while it may be difficult, it's an opportunity to push back against neoliberalism and neoliberal policies, and that some people are seeing that and taking advantage of that. Your thoughts, Caleb? Uh, oh, absolutely. And it's worth noting that Bavaria has historically been uh, poorer than the rest of Germany. Uh, it's a Roman Catholic region, but largely Catholic. And, um, and you know, you have mountains there, and the terrain is not as, uh, as, as you know, you know, uh, you know uh, amiable to, to the market. You know, you could argue that, you know, the feudalism kind of stayed more intact in Bavaria uh, than it was in other regions. As a result of that, it was not as fully economically developed. Um, and that Bavaria, you know, historically, uh, that is where there's been a lot of revolutionary movements in Germany. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned the Bavarian Soviet Republic before, but all across Europe, people are suffering. Um, and we're seeing a rise of, you know, you have parties like the AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, uh, you know, the, the German party that is critical of the European Union, critical of NATO. Uh, but then you also have the rise of groups like Die Link in Germany. That's the left coalition party. Uh, they've also been very, very critical of Germany's support. And, you know, bringing up with Germany's history, uh, they should be above that. They should be better than that. And uh, so, yes, it shouldn't be surprising that we see we saw an assembling of protesters and dissident voices countering uh, this, you know, assembly of, of leaders that are pushing for a confrontation with Russia and looking to prolong it. At this point, that seems to be what the United States is doing. At the U.N. yesterday, we heard from 
the representative of Russia who said that there's fatigue. He referred to fatigue. It was Dmitry Polyansky speaking before the U.N. as the Russian deputy ambassador. Talked about how in Europe and in the United States there's fatigue when it comes to Ukraine. The public is largely getting tired of it, and that's why they're constantly trying to come up with a new emotional thing to pluck the heartstrings. They had this claim that Russia had attacked the shopping mall, and in reality they had not. Because because at this point, the population is getting weary of a confrontation with Russia. So they have to do something to justify the continued flow of weapons and money into Ukraine, uh, a government that very much has no problem sacrificing its own people in order to, uh, to you know, increase tensions with Russia and cause Russia problems. Quickly, if you could, Caleb, talk about the shopping mall attack story, because as soon as I heard that story, and Garland and I have talked about it on the show over the last couple of days, it sounded eerily reminiscent of the uh, Russia attacking the train station story, which proved uh, not to be true. What evidence has been presented to support the rebuttal that, no, this was more of an errant Ukrainian missile than it was a, a strike by a Russian cruise missile? Well, essentially, we at this point have the surveillance video from the mall, uh, and it shows what happened. I mean, if the Russians wanted to destroy this mall, they would have completely destroyed it. Mm -hmm. It would have just been, you know, they had the capability to do that. Um, But if you look at the surveillance video, you can very clearly see that a lot of the merchandise in the mall is very well intact, uh, that, that there was a fire in the mall. And what most likely happened was that there was a Russian strike elsewhere, uh, that Russian strike uh, caused, you know, some fires, and that fire then, you know, ignited some ammunition. And so, you know, there was some spillover in the mall. But it's very clear they didn't target the mall because, you know, again, if they have the capability, as they have demonstrated over and over and over again over the past few months, they were targeting that mall, that mall would be flattened. <laughs> and instead, that mall, you know, things were well intact. Uh, a lot of the housing near the mall was completely untouched. And it appears that Russia attacked somewhere else. There were some explosions. And it's worth noting that the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian authorities are making a point of hiding their ammunition, uh, their weaponry, et cetera, in civilian areas. So, you know, Russia, it, it appears they struck somewhere else and, and in the process of striking this, this other military target, uh, somehow there was some ammunition or stockpiles of weapons or, or explosives that the Ukrainians had that was, that was detonated in the process, and it spilled over into this mall. But, but if they had intended to wipe out this mall, it would be completely wiped out. You wouldn't see what you see, which is that this mall is very, very well intact. It looks like there was some kind of fire or something that affected it. Bulgarian Prime Minister Kirill Petkov formally resigned on Monday after his government lost a no-confidence vote. The government fell after it lost the support of the populist ITN party. Caleb, it appears, I think, also, I think Latvia's government has fallen. Um, Bojo is, you know, is on uh, thin ice also. It certainly appears that it's the beginnings of the regime change that uh, President Biden called for in um, in Russia, but the regime change is manifesting itself all over Europe as a result of the boomerang effect of the Russia sanctions. Caleb, your thoughts? Sure. Well, I mean, Biden has been telling us he was going to crush Russia's economy, but now the ruble is doing pretty well, and it's the economy of the United States that's not doing so well. And we're seeing this all over the world, that uh, we're being told that in order to counter Russia, we have a duty to just tighten our belts and accept accept these drops in living standards, accept these uh, rising costs of food, rising costs of gasoline, inflation. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, the world is on edge. People just don't seem to want to take it. 
uh, and it's having even more disastrous effects in the developing world. Meanwhile, Russia and China, that are supposed to be just completely demolished by this, are actually continuing to experience growth. Uh, and it's kind of boomeranging, and it's turning around, and it's hitting the people uh, who, who intended to to send the weapon. Um, and, uh, I mean, they were intending to use food as a weapon, intending to use the oil and gas markets as a weapon. But the oil price is through the roof, um, and that's good for Russia, but it's not good for the rest of the economy of the Western countries. You know, people who have to fill up their gas tank are not thrilled about it. Big oil companies, it should be noted, they are making out like bandits, though. There's no question about it. The big four super majors, ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, and Chevron, uh, they are making super profits. The domestic economy of the United States is screaming, as is the domestic economy of Europe. Uh, but those oil bankers that sit at the top, uh, they are raking in super profits and securing their ultra-monopoly right now. And this is a great time for them. And it comes rather conveniently after the frackers were kind of swept away by the low oil prices that we saw under Obama. Uh, so the frackers have kind of been cleaned up. And, then, you know, under Obama, we had that big oil price drop. And, uh, you know, the oil prices were, were sinking. And even under, under Trump, the oil prices were staying pretty low. Uh, but now that, uh, that you know, the domestic crisis in Venezuela has proven it won't lead to the overthrow of the Venezuelan government. And now that, uh, you know, Iran has remained steadfast amid everything that was thrown at them, uh, now it seems like there is a decision to shoot those oil prices up as high as they possibly can. Um, you know, political turmoil in Libya is adding to that as well. And, uh, you know, the situation with Russia and the fact that Joe Biden uh, is not allowing domestic producers to, to rev up their drills, essentially. He's freezing uh, and preventing those domestic oil producers from, from increasing their efforts. The oil prices are just through the roof right now. It's a perfect storm. If you're an oil monopoly like the big four super major oil companies, you're going to be making out like a bandit right now. But you're going to be making out at the expense of the economy of the rest of the Western world. So as we have various groups in Bavaria protesting the 48th G7 summit, thousands have taken to the streets against the now the NATO summit in Madrid. It seems as though now where uh, Biden went to G7, now Biden's at NATO and then we also have 80,000 people in Belgium last week. Workers across Europe, including Belgium, they've been organizing mobilizations against the ongoing cost of living crises. This is not working out well for these governments, and we talked about it earlier in the show. Many of these are parliamentary systems. They require coalitions in order to be effective. I think there's a there we were just as we were just talking about with you another example of real problems on the political fronts in a lot of these countries. Sure, well there's a couple layers to that. I mean, you know, with Spain, you know, you'll remember that, you know, Spain has quite an interesting history that for a long time NATO coddled the brutal military dictatorship and authoritarian fascist regime of Franco. And it was kind of a coalition of Marxists and underground trade unions and leftists uh, who ultimately toppled that regime after the death of Franco. Um, and then you'll also recall that uh, back during the Iraq War, Spain was one of the few European countries that did the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And then uh, some of that terrorism, you know, turned around and hit Spain. And the reaction of the public was the opposite of what we had here in the United States, right? In the United States, after 9-11, we said, all right, go get them, George. There was support for U.S. interventions. But the response of Spain was like, wow, we went in with the United States. We supported their invasion of Iraq. And now now we're getting some of the blowback. And, you know, we, we're not involved in this. This is George Bush's fight. So after they had some terror attacks in Spain, at that point, the Spanish public voted in an anti-war government. 
And they said, we're done uh, going along with America's wars. That was a big mistake. Um, so Spain has an interesting history. I mean, it's a much more religious country uh, than most of the European Union countries, most of the, you know, the NATO members. Um, it's, it's certainly because of the, you know, the fascist dictatorship that was there following the Second World War. You know, they, they have a little bit more of a conservative culture. Uh, but at the same time, there is a, still a strong leftist current in Spain. So it, it's complicated, and uh, there is kind of a push and pull. Um, you know, Spain very much, you know, yes, it was a colonizer, like, way back in the 1700s. But uh, at this point, you know, Spain has always kind of been almost, you know, not, not a fully, completely mm-hmm. uh, a member of, of the so-called West. Mm-hmm. Now, Belgium is a different situation where you had the work. You know, in Belgium, you know, there is a very, very strong leftist party in the government called the Workers' Party of Belgium. They're actually one of the largest leftist groups, and they are, they are not social democrats. They are a hardline anti-imperialist Marxist party that has been supportive of, of Russia in this conflict, uh, has been in, in opposition to the forces in Ukraine, and they are very well represented in the government of Belgium. So both of these countries, uh, they are significantly to the left. Uh, of, of the main current of the European Union, the main current of NATO, and I think that's why we're seeing big outpourings there. But it represents what's boiling beneath the surface, which is working-class anger at the economic conditions. Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The New York Times reports, Commando Network coordinates flow of weapons in Ukraine, officials say. A secretive operation involving U.S. Special Forces hints at the scale of the effort to assist Ukraine's still outgunned military. As Russian troops press ahead with a grinding campaign to seize eastern Ukraine, the nation's ability to resist the onslaught depends more than ever on help from the United States and its allies, including a stealthy network of commandos and spies rushing to provide weapons, intelligence and training. This is according to U.S. and European officials. This is an interesting story, not only in its content, but also in its timing. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. So we've got this story as well as Caitlin Johnstone writing Ukraine crawling with CIA and company. The previously unthinkable idea that the U.S. is at war with Russia has been gradually normalized with the heat turned up so slowly that the frog doesn't notice it's being boiled alive. Your thoughts, Mark Schloboda. Yeah, I have to ask you, Dr. Leon, um, how's your uh, uh, Cold War era uh, bunker going? I mean, oh, it's that, done. That's fully stocked. It's wa- fully stocked. Well, it is. I'm waiting for the cable to be turned on. Yeah, you you, you better get on that because <laughs> that, that, that's that's where we're going. Yeah. All right. So on, on one face, this should have been obvious to mm-hmm. anyone uh, with an understanding of of the way 
the U.S. and uh, its intelligence and special forces operate, um, and uh, you know all of the denials from the Biden administration when they started off saying this is Ukraine's fight and we've pulled everyone out and we have no boots on the ground and we're not going to send anyone and and everything and I don't think anyone who is not a a U.S. government propagandist uh, or completely delusional could have could have bought that. I mean, considering, uh, you know, America's uh, history going back, you know, you want you want to go back to the, the Vietnam War and the mission creep there and the, quote, trainers and advisors by the thousands and what it morphed into. But we don't even have to go by that back that far. I'm old enough to remember Syria where President Obama said there would be no boots on the ground. And then there were boots on the ground. <laughs> and then and then there were CIA agents coordinating flows of weapons to jihadis. I mean, moderate jihad, I mean, moderate rebels. Um, <laughs> and where has that ended up? The uh, continuing U.S. invasion and military occupation of, of East Syria – uh, uh, particularly its oil fields uh, with its local proxy forces, uh, which shows no sign of ever going away. Um, and here we are again. And uh, suddenly we have uh, U.S. as well as um, um, uh, commandos, special forces from other NATO countries, including Britain, France, Canada, Lithuania, Poland's not on the list for some reason, but I'm quite sure that they're there as well. So I, I think we'll just add them in, even though the New York Times didn't mention it, um, and and probably others as well. And supposedly they're they're only there to coordinate intelligence. Evidently, the the uh, uh, U.S. intelligence and special forces have apps set up that they provide to Kiev regime forces that use satellite info that the US US is picking what targets they attack and how they attack them. So I mean th this is we've got uh nominally uh, uh Kiev regime Ukrainian troops although there's so many uh there are thousands of of foreign mercs from NATO countries on the ground as well. Uh, you have to wonder how much of uh, how much of them were uh sent there by uh, you know mercenary companies, security contractors, uh, not just with a wink and a nod from their own governments, but but direct promotion, uh, and they are using NATO weapons that they have received NATO training on. Uh, they are funded by NATO. The entire uh, uh, Kiev regime government is funded by NATO, and they are attacking targets chosen by. The U.S. and and the rest of NATO. So, I mean, if it wasn't anyone clear to anyone, Russia is fighting NATO uh, <laughs> in um, Ukraine, and there is not even a flimsy one degree of separation left anymore. Um, eventually, it will be admitted, uh, you know, that these commandos are engaging in some skirmishes, some some light conflict that they got caught up in. And it will start to mission creep and, and snowball from there as political outrage builds. And there are two reasons, right? This story was, quote, leaked, unquote, i.e. handed by U.S. government officials to the New York Times for 
two reasons, one of two reasons, probably both of those reasons is they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, one, to prepare the American public uh, that the American bodies in flag-draped coffins coming home to Dover Air Force Base from Ukraine may soon be in numbers that they can't really hide anymore. Mm. Uh, and number two, um, that to prepare the American public mm -hmm. for the mission creep Correct. that is coming. Correct. Because it is almost certain that this ends – with a U.S. military intervention into Ukraine where Russia is conducting an intervention, and that means direct war between uniformed forces on both sides, not just CIA and special forces commandos running around with Nike sports shoes because they're not wearing boots, obviously. Because there are no boots on the ground. Exactly. Well, here's the other thing, Mark. <clears throat> They're doing all of this stuff, right? They're providing this and that and blah, blah, blah. And the troops are getting routed. You know, the reality is there you can say, well, I'm giving them this. I'm providing them that I'm doing all kinds of things and they are getting routed. So the reality is all of this stuff, they'd be better off not to brag about it and say we're not giving them any help because the reality is I, I'm not saying it's saying it's not helping them occasionally have a small tactical victory or something like that. But overall, the direction of this thing is very, very clear. The other thing I'll add is this. I tend to also see this as, and it's something we've been hearing about l lately, instability and to some extent competing factions within the Biden administration where we're reading articles where there's some people in the administration saying, Ugh, this ain't looking good. We need to try to back out of this thing while we still can. And of course, the neocons like, no, we've got to dig in deeper. So what do you think about those two things, Mark? Yeah, well, if you'll remember, it was just three weeks ago that the New York Times was running headlines from U.S. government officials that they spoke to and people at the Pentagon that um, the U.S. didn't really have good intelligence about the Ukrainian military forces, uh, that they didn't – they had far better intelligence about what Russian forces were and that they didn't really know what the Ukrainians were up to. And everyone was kind of like, yeah – Right. Right. Like um, um, like you don't have agents, people uh, on the ground and that this was widely viewed as some type of cop out as, um, you know, as the blame shift uh, goes around. Uh, they essentially uh, are trying to dissolve them of responsibilities for the Kiev regime's forces, continual losses uh, on the battlefield and, and strategically. Uh, now, suddenly we find out that, hey. Actually, we do have lots of <laughs> intelligence agents uh, and commandos on the ground who are directing the flow of NATO weapons to these Kiev regime forces and giving them apps to help them pick out targets. But evidently, I guess we still don't know anything about them, right? <laughs> I mean, um, uh, I, I think at some point, you know, I know that, that the uh, media establishment in the U.S., does not mind being a constant vector of disinformation from the United States. But you got to wonder how many of the American people are are really sick of having smoke blown up their rear end as the government in power drags them into another conflict. 
Based on the reaction from people, it doesn't uh, – well, unless you use the declining viewer numbers for MSNBC and CNN, if you use that as the gauge, you say people are getting sick of this, but we don't see them in the street. So I, I don't know if their, if their illnesses are turning into action. Turkey lifts objection to Sweden and Finland's NATO membership. And uh, Turkish President Erdogan agreed yesterday to lift his objection to Sweden and Finland joining NATO, paving the way for these two nations to begin the accession process. We asked you weeks ago when this issue first presented itself and Erdogan said that he was standing in the way. uh, We asked you whether you thought this was Erdogan digging in based on principle or if he was trying to extract his pound of flesh. I believe you said he was trying to extract his pound of flesh. What say you about this latest development? Yes, I've said it repeatedly. I've, I've said it since the moment it happened. Uh, this was Erdogan being Erdogan, and as soon as they gave him enough to satisfy him, he would. And sure enough, uh, it seems that uh, Finland and Sweden uh, have caved Uh, And we have to assume that the U.S. was also involved. We don't know exactly what Erdogan got out of the deal, but he's right away coming out of this agreement, already trumpeting to uh, the Turkish public and press that they expect dozens of extraditions from of Kurds uh, that uh, Sweden and Finland um, have either. Uh, given political asylum from. Some of them are are actually citizens and members of uh, their country's part of the Swedish parliament right now uh, that uh, Turkey will be demanding back. So um, that's going to be real interesting. It also seems clear that they've removed weapon exports restrictions uh, that they had currently Uh, that they had previously put on Turkey exactly because of actions against U.S.-backed Kurds uh, in eastern Syria and so forth. Uh, But I'm sure there's more deals, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, that the deal between the U.S. and Turkey on F-16s and possibly the U.S. sanctions on the S-400 have been cleared as well. Well, I will say this: Erdogan is truly a fool if he thinks they're going to they're going to live up to those um, promises. There is no possible way that's going to happen. They've got what they wanted, and they don't need him now. But I don't think he's a fool. I think he wanted to go for as much as he could possibly get, and I think that's where he is. I do think. Let me ask you this real quick before we go. I do think maybe not now, but by winter there is going to be some serious pain in the Balkans and in Finland over a lot of this when it comes to economic and gas and electricity and things of that nature, Mark. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I I think one of the reasons that Zelensky uh, has recently uh, said that this conflict must be over by winter is because of the increasing political pressure that will be on European countries as they run out of gas and uh, they're they're, they're telling their citizens uh, and even greater urgency to go chop firewood to keep themselves warm and put on more sweaters. And go collect sticks from the floor of the forest that are not more than seven centimeters long. That seven centimeters is crucial. And you have to have a license to do so. As always, Mark Sloboda, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. 
Thanks for having me. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Amnesty International report demands Biden take action to end the death penalty. Quote, the world is waiting for the USA to do what almost 100 countries have achieved during this past half century, total abolition of the death penalty, according to Amnesty International. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's one of the top lawyers in California, if not the country. His firm handles police misconduct, including excessive force, deadly force, false arrests, illegal searches, racial profiling the entire portfolio. He has argued cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He is attorney John Burris. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. As usual, it's good to be with both of you. Uh, this is a issue to, be honest, to let you know that I argued against the death penalty in the fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> this is an issue that has been dear to me uh, for many, 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 many years. Uh, although I don't do any death penalty work anymore, but I did have a death penalty case um, when I that is as a defense lawyer, I had a death penalty case, and it was a highly contested uh, case. And as all death penalties are, probably another level, um, higher, higher instinctive letter, letter, level than most cases. Um, but uh, it is something that is, uh, I, mem- I remember arguing in my own death penalty case that I was doing that this whole irrationality. The, the racism that undergirds, under, undercuts it, the statistical data, all indicating that African Americans are more inclined to get the death penalty than whites, uh, and that and, they, and they're far likely to get more get them uh, when crimes are committed against whites than they are against blacks. So it was a major issue uh, that I argued these matters back in the 1980s, uh, and this was shortly after the death penalty had been ruled unconstitutional uh, in 1972. But there's been a, there was a gradual reinstatement, and certainly by the time I had my case, California had reinstated the death penalty, and as well as many other states, but a lot more they claim to be protections uh, in them than than they had before. It never made a lot of sense to me um, that this whole issue of of death penalties and why you got to have it, particularly when you have people who are on both sides who are hypocrites on this issue. They don't they want to protect their life on on um, fetuses, but they want to take lives from people uh, who they don't think have deserved them or they haven't lived the kind of life that they want. So the question is, does the president do this? Well, I think that what we've shown with the president that his rhetoric and campaigns don't always match his conduct. And, and to some extent, that's more a function of the political process, the realities of, of the political processes that come into play than anything else. I, I do think he wanted to do the policing stuff, and I do think he wanted to say Roe versus Wade, but I'm not convinced that, like immigration, that he is prepared to do anything uh, significant on the death penalty. So it is um, one of these issues that had a lot of uh, um, a background and long history, much like uh, abortion cases. It's one of these issues that will be with us, I think, forever. 
but maybe not on the same level that it was some years ago, but it, it is still a very forceful um, a rallying cry for the law and order people. You know, John, one of the things, it's interesting you said that because I started my radio career um, uh, arguing against the death penalty the first time I ever went on the radio. That's what I was representing the ACLU. And I've always felt that this was a powerful argument, and that is in the event, and we've had this happen, that you find out that a person was wrongfully convicted, if they have life in prison, you can mitigate that. You can let them out. Oh, sure, nothing will give them the money back. But we've seen that happen time and time again. We There's a guy, I during my radio career, I had the opportunity to interview a guy named Kirk Bloodsworth. He was the first person in the U.S. He was convicted. He was given the death penalty. And later on, they found DNA evidence and the, the DNA technology came out and he He's the first person in America that was um, exonerated by that. And here's a guy who got the death penalty for raping, murdering a 10-year-old girl. So that has been my argument all the time. Your thoughts? Well, that's a, par- that's a powerful argument. I, I, and I think that there's even there's a lot more per- empirical data out that supports that. I mean, these exoneration cases are pretty routine these days. And they certainly aren't people in prison, but some of them, of course, I believe, uh, affect death penalty because you have a percentage of people who were exonerated generally. Uh, and you've got to believe that carryover percentage may very well be consistent with those who've gotten the death penalty as well. So uh, if it's 1%, 0.5%, it is a percentage. My view on that is that you shouldn't be killing people when you don't, you shouldn't be killing them, period. But certainly, if you are killing them, you got to make 150% certain that you have the, the right person. One of the things that's happened now, if you listen to some of the data, is the Supreme Court had moved away from this whole question of, of um, uh, intellectually, insuperior, intellectually inferior people that uh, should not be executed because they don't really understand the nature of the crime that they've committed. And, and so, therefore, as a consequence of that, then they can't understand and appreciate the punishment they're giving. That has not been consistently applied. If you look at some of the cases, there have been a lot of cases in Texas and Missouri and other places where the death penalty has given to people who were intellectually buried uh, at the lowest end of the, the functioning level. So I think that that is another arbitrariness that is implied. But we also don't uh, do execute juveniles, which is good. Now, juveniles shouldn't get life and imprisonment either, but certainly it's, it's, there's some, been some movement there. I've looked at this whole question about how people get the death penalty and, and, and does it really matter or should we give a lot of attention to it? Because we've graduated from firing squad to gas chambers to electric chairs, and now we're talking about um, sodium pentothal, uh, uh, the shot, the, the concoction. And, 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 and some will say that we shouldn't give the death penalty in those situations because it causes too much pain and anguish to a body as it, as it reacts to the medicine that's given to them. And now some companies won't even allow the, the states to use it. The question is, where, where does all that get us? I think they should outlaw death penalties completely. I think the president um, is probably not willing to go all the way there. Certainly they've commuted some sentences. They put a moratorium on it. But I think politically it's probably too hot for him to want to touch because there are a lot of law and order people out here who really who really believe in it. And then you have a case that cries out for it, like that, that boy from Oklahoma who killed McVeigh, or the people who recently, uh, this young, um, these, um, South, these uh, young men in Boston 
the Boston Strongs, the Boston Marathon killed a lot of those people. And so when you start taking things away, then you say, well, what about such and such? Shouldn't he get the death penalty? My answer is that would be no. No, I don't believe that. I think that we should not. But this is where we are in this day of it. What does it say to you, John, about the United States socially and culturally when overwhelming studies show that the death penalty is not a deterrent to crime? So because in many instances, the types of crimes that result in the death penalty are crimes of passion. So in the midst of committing the crime, you're not thinking about the consequence. You're so wrapped up in the moment that you're just engaged in the act. Uh, Over 100 countries uh, have done away with the death penalty, and the United States has some of the highest crime rates in the world. So one has to ask the question, what purpose does the death penalty serve? Why are we executing people? For what reason? So what does it say to you that the United States, which which traverses the world uh, under the under the banner of democracy and human rights and all this other kind of stuff that we love to to uh, to talk about is executing people, executing people that we know are innocent and to what end? Well, clearly it's about revenge, and it's very personal. So I, I think that's the other side of it, as opposed to the, looking at it beyond and from a national scope. When you're really talking about um, death penalty, it's, it's, it's very personal. And it's about revenge for the people who got it, uh, who, who want to see whoever killed that person uh, be killed, or get the same punishment, or should not live. So I see that as uh, critically important and, and that that's there. But I also think that one of the things we reason why it's going to we, we can't make a, a real dent, and that is because of guns. And as long as you have this pervasive of guns all over the place, and anybody can have them, which then means you have shootings and stuff. I just I see it almost hand in hand. The United States has the highest level of gun usage, and, and, and because of that, they have higher murder rates in just about every country other than maybe Manila and maybe Pakistan, but certainly um, it's high. And so I don't see any kind of willingness to get rid of it uh, because it's, it's like, as, as a Skip, Tip O'Neill used to say, all politics is local. Well, I think homicides and, and death penalties are local. Because the people who the you know, everyday people who get who are, who are killed, that serve the basis, and of course uh, the family members as well, who really want the death penalty. <laughs> the people who have family members, they very few, very few are, like, are not like like Robert Kennedy's family or John F. Kennedy's families. They were not those. They want, but those are political people who had deep, deep political uh, ideology around it. But everyday ordinary people, they want the revenge. And so, um, and I think that's the undercurrent of it. It has nothing to do with international. It's about everyday people uh, wanting to make whoever hurt them to pay. You know, you could make the argument that, uh, you know, if you don't bring religion into it, that revenge says you suffer a lot longer. There are a lot of people that have said, I'd rather get the death penalty than spend the next 40 years in jail. So there's an argument to be made that if you want revenge, that the long term of this person is going to be a more stringent penalty than just, you know, and you could argue letting them off the hook with a death penalty. And also to that, to that, if you would add cost, because there are those who say, well, 
putting somebody away for 40 years is a burden on the taxpayers, but they don't understand what it costs to actually execute somebody. Well, I think that both of those points are right. I mean, at the end of the day, the cost uh, um, of, 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 of all the appeals that take place is really huge. Uh, all the appeals that take place and people say you should get rid of that part, portion of it and just have them in custody. But I, honestly, that's not what people feel. They don't feel and appreciate that the person is locked up forever. That's not what they feel. They don't get a chance to, to hone in on what the real damage to them is. That person took my friend, my relative, my son, my daughter's life, and they need to have their life taken as well. And so that's the revenge that they see. And I don't think it's rooted in anything, uh, in anything other than <clears throat> the, the fact that this is what happened to me. And I want happen to you as well. You don't deserve to live, and my prayers dead. And and, and you, and even though it's, you're in prison, you're still alive. And so I think that that's the, the underpinnings of, it. and that's to me, you know, that's the contradiction I saw as a as a ten year old. Uh, the contradiction of that shall not kill, um, but yet um, you kill people uh, because you think they committed crimes, and that's not even knowing as as a, as a kid that it was also political as well. And that everybody who commits murder doesn't get the death penalty. And a lot of and the ones who commit, if you're black and you kill a white person, you're more likely to get it. If you kill a black, you're probably not. Or if a white person kills you or kills a black person, you're not likely to get it. So these are these things are, are fundamentally intertwined in the intertwined in the whole subculture of the police, the policing culture, as well as the social relationships that exist. So there's no inherent fairness about any of this. Because it's not implicated and implemented in a way that uh, is, is necessarily fair. Putting aside the question, should you have done it all? John Burris, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Absolutely. You guys take care. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Soaring U.K. inflation tops 9%, fueling labor unrest. This while Britain threatens to cut off gas to the EU, according to the Financial Times. The U.K. has warned it may shut off the pipeline to the continent. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political activist, independent journalist, and podcaster, Nico House. As always, Nico, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, gentlemen. So last week, the U.K. saw the start of the biggest national rail strike in 30 years. Other groups of workers, including bus drivers and garbage collectors, had already walked out. And teachers, postal workers, and some government-funded lawyers are planning to withhold their labor now. EU is facing more gas supply uncertainty as Britain has threatened to cut off its gas flow to the continent should it face a severe shortage. This was reported by the Financial Times today. Nico, this is really getting ugly. Yeah, man, I'm on I'm on the verge of uh, going on strike just to go to the gas station to get gas at this point. So I, I can feel them, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, but I know this isn't something that's unique to the to the UK either. I know in California, there have been a lot of small businesses 
uh, and their employees that have actually gone on strike and are refusing to go to work because of how high those gas prices got. And, um, you know, we have, at least to my knowledge, more alternative means for gas. Like, we could get more access. We could theoretically lower prices because we're not necessarily um, as beholden and relying on OPEC or Russian uh, oil as the U.K. is. However, the U.K. is not in that situation. And the response that we've seen, which is, oh, well, it's worth it to help Russia or, excuse me, help the Ukraine. And, like, that's ridiculous. Like, your people are suffering uh, financially and otherwise. The winter is coming, right? That's a big deal that people aren't talking about. And if they start cutting off gas like this, uh, what happens next in my humble estimation gets a lot, a lot uglier than what it looks like now. You know, one of the things I think also we're seeing, Boris Johnson, to to what you said a moment ago, Boris Johnson has today said soaring inflation linked to sanctions on Russia are, quote, a price worth paying. And again, it shows the um, separation between the elite ruling class, an inept, hapless elite ruling class and the people. Because, yes, if you're Boris Johnson, you know, you're living pretty good. And when you're out of office, let's face it you're still going to be living pretty good. So we've got this elite ruling class that they can talk about making sacrifices, but in reality, none of them have to make sacrifices whatsoever. So they're saying to the people, you all make the sacrifices. And here's the issue, you, uh, here's the issue, Nico. They didn't ask us before. They didn't say, are you willing to make sacrifices so we can try to rule the world? Because we would have said no. So they then, they create the sacrifices, and then without asking us, and now they say, yeah, you guys, you'd be good. You're, you're good. You'll be able to handle this. Just ride it out. Food, money, things like that are overrated. Nico, Allen. well, hey, Garland, what did what did uh, the Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, say during the French Revolution? Let them eat cake. So we can't we can't go to the grocery store to get cake. Oh, OK. OK. Woman. We can't oh. even get to the grocery store to get cake unless you live in walk. I love, I, love, I live across the street from my grocery store. Thank God. Or else I'd just be starving because I can't really afford to drive there at the moment. But. It, in all seriousness, like people like Boris Johnson are fine with quote unquote paying the price, you know, in this particular instance because all oh, his gas is subsidized by the government when they're in power. A lot of times when they're outside of it because of all the benefits and pensions that you get, like he's not paying any price, which is why he's okay with asking his people to pay a price uh, for a conflict that they did not once again um, in, ask to engage in, have shown any real real support to engage in. Um, I'm sure if you ask them if they have rather have food on the table and gas in their tank or go to war with Ukraine, uh, I'm pretty sure they would choose the former. Um, and also, I think that it's the, the stark difference, because the point that you brought up about ruling the world, like they didn't ask us to sacrifice before they decided to go out and try to rule the world. Like, that's actually a great point, because prior to recently, except for in very specific circumstances, the, the going out and ruling the world part came with surplus. People were able to become financial real estate investors when they joined, went to Iraq, did their 15 or 20 years, got out, got a full pension, got to go to college, got health care, family taken care of forever. That's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing that not, you, you know, you might have to take a bullet or two or at least have a couple shots your way, before, you know, but you, the, the country lives in excess to a large degree. And then what happened when you started seeing less and less support for the war in Iraq? Because the economy started looking like our chances of actually winning that war, which wasn't good. And so I think, again, you're starting to see there's like a sacrifice with no real tangible goal uh, to be had. 
in any way that's, uh, you know, tangibly benefit or beneficial, excuse me, to the people who are doing all the sacrificing. And that's, that's what I think is the most frustrating. It's easy to be, um, to kind of show, to, 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 to give a blind eye to imperialism when you're experiencing surplus, the benefits of mm-hmm. imperialism. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we're seeing this time. Everybody is getting hit. And meanwhile, I don't know if you've kept up with Rachel Blevins and, and, and Fiorella Isabel, who are both in Russia right now. They're like, man, the only ones in Russia who are feeling the effects of these sanctions are us because we got American bank accounts. <laughs> and there are people in Russia that are like, it's almost like they have no idea what's going on. Not that they don't. Obviously, they do. But they're fine. It's everybody else from every other country who's having issues. Do you see any correlation? Do you see any fallout? Do you see any tie to Britain threatening to cut off gas to the EU as Britain left the EU? I I mean, I think they're threatening to cut off gas to the EU. And I don't know if they're trying to do it as a flex move or, or, you know what? I have a theory. I want to know your opinions about this. Like, realistically, if you understand the history of Vladimir Putin as a leader of Russia, uh, in the context of all of these conflicts that we've been in, uh, whether it be the U.S. directly or NATO in, in its entirety, he's actually shown much more humanity when it comes to dealing with these conflicts. Whenever the U.S. oversteps its boundaries, Russia has had plenty and ample opportunity to retaliate in a way that would be equitable to what the U.S. has done, and they don't do it. They don't sacrifice, they don't blame the surges, soldiers for the decisions of these, these generals, these Joint Chiefs of Staff even though they could. And I feel like there's a part of the, the, the EU and a part of, the, of Great Britain and even to some degree the United States that's like, hey, man, like people, you know, people are hurting over here. And if, if you don't start giving us gas back or start working with the currency that we can work with, then these people are going to suffer. And I feel, I feel like they actually believe that that is actually going to do, like, th- that has a chance to succeed. Because Putin, unlike our leaders, have actually shown a level of humanity that our people have not demonstrated. You know, I, I also think that um, here's the other part. Uh, 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 Russia is working with China and India and working with its partners to get through this and create things and economic blah, blah, blah. I think this is the the Brits basically saying, look, when times get hard, you're on your own. We, we ain't got no extra gas for you. So on one side, you have this coalition working together. On the other side, this coalition is like, we're all together until we get short of gas. And then, buddy, we can't do nothing for like, you. We're trying we to do for us. So we can do stuff like this. But see, <laughs> I, I also think it has to do with uh, President Putin as well as President Xi having a different and a longer understanding of history. You know, Joanne Lai was asked about the impact of the French Revolution, and he said it's too early to say. And so I I think that both Putin and Putin and Lavrov and uh, uh, Xi Jinping and his foreign minister, they're a hell of a lot smarter than Joe Biden and uh, wink and blinking and nod. And, and so they're not going to allow themselves to be baited into an action or into a reaction that's going to allow the United States to justify the hegemonic militaristic plays that it wants to make. As Who, who was it said, uh, you have the watches, but we have the time? Yeah, and, and, and make no mistake about it, any military action that Russia— has decided to engage in has been very deliberate. It has been very calculated. And they, they understand where the beginning and the end is. 
which obviously is almost never the case for the United States. Um, and it partially could be a transition of power. I do think that the Democrat and Republican parties have different ideas of what success are, and they're beholden to different uh, elites around the world. And I think that that could be part of the reason why. But Putin and even Xi Jinping, who I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of, but like he's not an idiot. Neither of them are stupid. Correct. And if they went whenever Putin decided, yeah, you know what? It's about that time. Let's go ahead and set it off. And he went inside of Ukraine. This wasn't a rational move. It wasn't brash. This wasn't like, ah, oh, I just have to do something now because I don't know what. No, no, no. He knew exactly what would happen. Be, I mean, the dude has started buying up a bunch of gold and stacking up their deposits for like a decade now. He was not an idiot. He had anticipated NATO's move. He knew that they were going to violate the Minsk Agreement the moment they had the opportunity to. He knew that they were going to try to get involved in Ukraine to the degree they shouldn't, uh, that the Minsk Agreement was supposed to prevent them from doing so. He knew. He knows about the coups. He's not an idiot. He said the reason that y'all got, he knows the reason y'all got Biden in power. He's not an idiot. And so the, the fact that anyone thought that this was going to end in any way other than how it is ending right now, it's crazy to me. It means you don't know your history like the Putin's and the GGPs of the world. You know, Nico, the other thing I think is, in looking at this, there's two tracks. There's a military track, which Russia is moving very slowly and deliberately, but certainly they're winning there. But on the economic track, I think, you know, people are like, they're not moving fast enough. It benefits Russia to have this thing drag out as long as possible, because as this happens, the EU and the U.S., but more so the EU first, economies are collapsing. The time's going to come when the leaders in the EU, they ain't going to have have time to worship, worry about Ukraine because they're going to have people standing outside of their collective capitals with, uh, you know, uh, ready to cut somebody's head off. And those times are not far away. Nico. Oh, yeah, 100 um, percent. And the longer this gets dragged out, the increased likelihood of those people, those leaders eventually having to turn to who? Like, if it's not going to be Russia, it's going to be China. If it's not going to be China, it's going to be Iran or India. It's going to be one of the BRICS and all their uh, allies, because uh, <laughs> you ain't going to turn to the U.S. U.S. kind of broke right now. The EU is kind of broke right now. The NATO, NATO and its allies are not looking good economically, while Russia literally looked at the world and said, yeah, we're not going to do business in dollars anymore. Bye. And, and the ruble is thriving since that decision was made, which I don't know if the U.S. actually anticipated that happening. But, like, I don't know if I anticipated that happening to that degree, honestly. I knew that Russia was fine, but this is, like, a different level of, like, once again, it demonstrates they're not stupid and they know their history. And they have been moving the pieces on the chessboard far longer uh, and more effectively than the United States has. But eventually, you're going to have to turn to somebody. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to my broke cousin uh, to pay my bills. Even I'm going to have to go talk to, you know, the, the rich one who I don't like. But I seen his account, his bank account, and like, look, man, I know we had some problems in the past, but listen, <laughs> I wasn't even really in charge. It wasn't even me. It was really my dad you had a problem with. I was trying to be a good guy and back up. But you know what? Tell my dad. I just, I don't even know why. I don't even like him all that much, to be honest. Let's just go ahead and talk this out, you know? Like, that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. In fact, I would say it's already started happening behind closed doors, if we're being real. Oh, there's no question about that. And, and uh, it's also important to understand the adage, uh, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Well, in this case, what, what, what Europe is finding out is you don't bite the hand that provides you wheat and you don't bite the hand that heats your home. Because yes. Oh, especially that last one. Especially that. And then the, the Saudi Arabia thing, 
how like they ex- everybody expected Saudi Arabia to bend the knee to NATO, and they were like, huh? Like Saudi Arabia has already been moving the pieces on the chessboard to get to to take care of itself in the event that the United States actually does have a successful coup in Iran. Nico House, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Of course. Thanks for having me, guys. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. PopularResistance.org has a piece, The Neocon's Dream, Decolonize Russia, Recolonize China. On March 26th, President Biden called for regime change in Russia. The White House immediately rushed to talk back that call for regime change. And a day later, Biden denied that he was calling for regime change. What does all this really mean? Why all of this conflict in rhetoric? Let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist. He's an author. He's an analyst. He's the author of The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup in America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, Daniel, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So we've got on the one hand, Joe Biden calling for regime change and then saying that he doesn't. But then you've got other parts of the U.S. government making it unmistakably clear that it aims in Russia go even further than regime change. Popular resistance says that tomorrow the government's Commission on Security and Cooperation will hold a briefing on the moral and strategic imperative that makes it necessary to decolonize Russia. Dan and Lazar, your thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, I, I mean, I think that the uh, that the 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 attitude of the U.S. government or the or Washington or that whole culture or the blob, as is sometimes is sometimes called, has been one of of growing hostility to Russia. Now, hostility not only to Russia's various foreign policy ventures, but hostility to Russia itself. I mean, it wants to diminish Russia, cut it down to size, and we know at various points, certain foreign policy spokesmen, such as uh, Big New Brzezinski, have called for actually breaking up Russia. Um, so, uh, so the so the the attitude is, is one of hostility. That hostility is rising due to the 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 super hot international atmosphere, uh, and so these these cries are growing more serious, and I might add, more dangerous. Well, you know, um, the thing about it here is uh, that. The Russians' concern was the U.S. wants to overthrow our government and just completely take over Russia. And here's what I would say. It ain't just you, Russia. The neocons, that is their game for the world. The 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 great transgression that China has done against the United States is looking out for their own well-being, for trying to grow their economy, for trying to bring their people out of poverty at a time when what the if you look historically at the U.S. and the colonial powers in Europe, the way they have survived and maintained power, powerful economies is by oppressing the third world. They expect you, Russia and China, to be oppressed third world and keep them going. And the reality is that Russia and China are powerful enough now 
that they don't have to deal with that anymore. And the question is, how far will the U.S. empire and its vassals go in this futile attempt to um, recreate this circumstance that just doesn't exist anymore? Well, Garland, can I can I add one thing to your point? It's not only what you've just said, but the other side of the equation is, to a great degree, the United States has brought a lot of this on itself by deindustrializing its economy, by turning to a financialized economy. We don't make anything anymore. And we're mad at China because they've capitalized and taken advantage of the economic realities that we just dismissed and, and you know, oh, we're going to move on to a new paradigm. And China has said, no, we're going to capitalize on the existing paradigm and take it to another degree. Uh, that's my thought on what you just said. Your thoughts, Daniel Lazar. I, no, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you totally. And I think it's really interesting that, um, that uh, I mean, and what happened is, that the, is, the, is the U.S., you know, uh, you know, they brought China, the U.S. agreed to China's entry into the global marketplace under Bill Clinton because they were confident with there was that what they would see would be a a replay of what occurred in the Soviet Union in 1991. In other words, China would would you know would dismantle its socialist sector, would reinvent itself as some kind of liberal capitalist state. Um, and uh, and and and, the, and everything would be hunky dory. Everyone everyone around the globe would admit the United States was right. They would they would readily accede to America's you know political, economic, and moral leadership, and everything would just be fantastic. It didn't work out that way um, because essentially China opted for a different model, which was to allow a very large capitalist sector but still within what was broadly speaking some kind of worker state, some kind of socialist state, uh, albeit one that's Stalinist to the core. Um, anyway, uh, and, and, and it, was, it was Xi, Xi Jinping, following his rise to power in 2012, who made that crystal clear, which made the United States very angry. And this is the same time that you know that that Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State when relations with Russia turned really sour when the U.S. headed off on all these foreign adventures in Syria, Libya, uh, etc. Uh, and so suddenly, around 2012, the the international atmosphere uh, turned very frosty and politically fraught. Um, so so uh, so since then, the U.S. has has compensated by essentially increasing its political demands. I mean, essentially, you know, uh, you know, recognizing not, you know, not one corner of the globe, no matter how obscure, whether it's lower Transylvania or upper Tibet, is, you know, somehow must, you know, must uh, be in accord with U.S. policy, or the U.S. will come down on it like a like a load of bricks, and. Um, and and China has felt the same pressure. I mean, there's the the U.S. campaign. There's the U.S. campaign to break away Tibet. The U.S. campaign to detach uh, Xinjiang over the phony uh, Uyghur genocide issue. Um, so so the U.S. has gotten only more aggressive. There was a certain retreat under Trump, 
But under Biden, you know, the slogan was America is back and America has up the ante all the more. And it's pushing things to the breaking, the breaking point. And China is also investing in its country. It's investing in its people. It's pulling people out of poverty. It is turning those capitalist dollars into creating a middle class. And to the degree you, the United States isn't doing it because to, a, to a, a, a great degree, again, we don't have the manufacturing base that we used to have. And we now want to put so much of our money into the military industrial complex and, complex, and we're saying to hell with the middle class in the United States and, and really to hell with the poor. So we get what we get. Yeah. And, and, the, and the U.S. also has put its resources into an, an increasingly financialized economy. Exactly. Which, mean, which, which means bitcoins and skyrocketing real estate prices and a and a and a stock market that for a while was was shooting through the roof, uh, but now all that is turning really shaky. Um, and uh, and so so consequently, the U.S. is kind of and, and as for the military industrial complex, meanwhile, also uh, the U.S. is flooding the Ukraine with weapons, but that situation is growing shaky as well. So the U.S. is not doing very well. I mean, it's 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 policies are running a running aground economically, militarily, politically, etc. Uh, and um, and it's kind of up against the wall. So uh, you know, America thought that 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 Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping would be up against the wall, but now it seems that it's Joe Biden who's up against the wall. Not to mention Olaf Scholz and uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, and, and Boris Johnson, all of whom are in deep political trouble. It certainly looks, Dan. I mean, we're seeing, uh, you know, you, you know, we, you and the three of us have been talking about this some, from the very beginning when we could kind of see the writing on the wall saying it ain't going to be a pretty <laughs> summer. It's going to be an even uglier um, fall. And if winter looks like it's thinking, because I think they're going to get Russia's cutting them off in the winter. The what Russia's going to cut them off of some gas or whatever in the winter. That the least of their problems. At some point here within the next six to eight months, the very least of their problems will be Ukraine and will be um, uh, uh, Russia, because the people who got them into this mess, A, ain't going to be in office to get them out, and B, and I've said this before, at some point, their acts are so egregious against their own populations, I believe there will be a discussion, if not consideration, of holding these people criminal resp criminally responsible, Dan. Well, I, I think I think so. I think that the uh, the Western countries are heading for a real crunch politically, and I think America is first and foremost. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 as hesitant as I am to predict the uh, the outcome of the of the midterm elections, I mean, it just looks worse and worse for Biden. And the economy stinks. The military situation in the, in the Ukraine stinks. His poll numbers keep. Falling and falling and falling, uh, you know, and um, and and things are so desperate, you know, that that Janet Yellen is cooking up crazy, crazy <laughs> schemes, you know, to to put a cap on Russian oil prices, which everyone knows is not going to work, you know, and uh, and it's just not going well. And I think the the voters are really upset. And I would I would toss into that. I'd toss into it uh, the repeal of Roe. 
by a far right Supreme Court, mm-hmm. a step that is a, opposed by 60 percent of Americans, you know, who have completely lost control over fundamental policy. Their government is heading off in a completely different direction from what the people want. And the people don't like this as well. And even though that Joe Biden hopes he'll, it'll, it'll somehow get him votes in November, I think the opposite is the case. I think people are losing are, are losing patience with, with, with political leaders like Biden who are weak and incompetent and speak out of both sides of their, of their mouth and can't get anything done. That's, people are really angry out there. And to that point, Dan, they, they're angry not only because there's nothing getting done, but they're not even fighting for anything. As Gil Scott Heron would say, nobody's fighting because nobody knows what to save. So he does. He hasn't. He can't even use the, the 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 largest weapon in his in his arsenal, which is the bully pulpit, and rally people to anything because he has no message. But Joe Biden, as he what's the he what the, the term is? He's an institutionalist. That means that he's like no, he's a he's a loyal senator who's used to doing things the old senatorial way, the way it's been done for. For centuries and centuries. No, I think that means that he should be in an institution. In an institution, yes. Yeah. And uh, and and uh, but but he he he's he's like he's a get along, go along, compromiser. You know who who wants to be pals with uh, Mitch McConnell, and can't understand why Mitch McConnell <laughs> doesn't return the favor. Uh, you know he's he's just the he is just a singularly uninspiring character. Branko, Branko Martitich said he's yesterday's man. He is. Yes. And he is losing touch. I mean, they, they, it was a yesterday's New York times and a front page article about he's insisting on running in 2024. I mean, the man just has no idea of where things stand. He's out of it. He's like, he's like your doddering uncle who you, you know, who you see on Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a uh, guy is nowhere and no one believes in what he has to say. But at least Dan, my doddering uncle that I see on Thanksgiving knows it's Thanksgiving. Daniel Lazar, <laughs> sir. Thank you. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the critical hour here on radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space on behalf of myself and my co-host Garland Nixon. We hope you were informed and enlightened and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.